If you could put together the ideal Presbyterian, what would it look like? Baptized as an infant. Every baptism is wonderful, but right, we baptize infants because nothing so clearly and fully names that God loves us and claims us far before we're able to or even want to respond. Baptized as an infant. Family name, again, any name is great, but wouldn't it great if, if we had someone with the last name Knox or Calvin? And wouldn't it be great if they were a direct descendant of one of those great forebears of the, of the faith and Presbyterianism and the Reformed faith? Uh, military service, good, good to serve your, your, your country, but especially a country founded with a good number of Presbyterians instrumental in, in crafting uh, the representative democracy that we have. Reputable college. Right? Presbyterians value education a great deal. And again, we're aiming for this ideal. It's a great schooling. Good morals, studies scripture, makes good decisions, does the right thing. Maybe you could add a couple other things that the ideal Presbyterian might have. But goodness, if as every child and grandchild could, could have something of, of all of those. And honestly, those credentials, they don't differ all that, that much from the Apostle Paul. Uh, we read in another part of the Bible, in Philippians, uh, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day of his life, as a Jewish male was supposed to be in a faithful Jewish family. Paul was not only Jewish, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes, an Israelite tribe that was in Scripture compared to a wolf because of its military prowess. Paul received uh, his schooling under Gamaliel, one of the most respected, rabbis of his time. Paul, we read in scripture, really became known as a Hebrew of Hebrews, quite ardent in his study of scripture and in following God's way. And, and now Paul is writing uh, this letter to part of the church in 1 Timothy, where the church is facing the influence of voices and teachers that are pulling the church astray. And so Paul's leaning into this letter, needing to persuade the church to listen to him, to trust him, to, to give his voice a hearing in, in direction and in guidance and leadership. And, and fortunately, we think, well, it's Paul. Remind these folks, or maybe let them know for the first time, that when it comes to faith in God, you're as credentialed as it gets. They have for good reason, reason to trust you. And yet, what's it that Paul leads with? I'll read from the message version of that passage I just read aloud. I'm so grateful to Christ Jesus for making me adequate to do this work. He went out on a limb, you know, and trusting me with this ministry the only credentials I brought to it were violence and witch hunts and arrogance. Maybe some of you remember the story that Paul here is alluding to. It's that story where the very credentialed Saul, as Paul's name uh, used to be, uh, realized that what he thought was ardency and zeal for God was in fact directly opposed to God. Right, it unfolds in, in Acts chapter 9. Uh, it begins, 
Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And righteously so, he believed. These people who follow Jesus, they're they're wrong, they're false, and, and he's strong enough and courageous enough to do something about it. Squash the movement. Story continues, right? He's, he's moving towards the city Damascus and, and um, a light from heaven flashes around him and he falls to the ground and, and a voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul cries from the ground. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Saul, he then goes blind for three days and during that time and afterwards becomes quite clear that that all the things he'd been taking in and counting as his credentials, his faithfulness, his godly zeal, those were in fact expressions of his ruthlessness, his arrogance, his violence against Jesus. I mean, it's really one of the more striking stories in all of Scripture. And it's surely a striking thing to recall on this 21st anniversary of 9-11 and in a year where rumors of new violence ever abound, that one of the single most influential voices of the Christian faith began his life believing deeply that his violence was an expression of faithfulness to God. And Jesus led him from that. Again, the message version of of a portion of our passage. I was treated mercifully because I didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know who I was doing it against. Grace mixed with faith and love poured over me and into me and all because of Jesus. Paul's trying to gain a hearing. He's trying to gain trust trying to get a seat at the table among the other competing voices of of influence that are pulling and leading the people astray. And Paul does not start with his qualifications. He does not make a robust theological statement that makes clear uh, just how put together he is. Paul leads with his story about failure, blindness, unfaithfulness. The only credentials I brought were violence, witch hunts, and arrogance. I can only even write to you because of what Jesus has poured upon me and through me. And I think this point is crucial for the church today. This past July, you may have seen there was a significant Gallup poll that came out showing that our nation's trust in in institutions across the board, institutions of all sorts, uh, is at a historic low. Specifically, our collective trust in the church or organized religion is at a historic low. 69% of the respondents said they have some or very little trust in the church or organized religion. And while the poll doesn't unpack all the reasons people uh, said that, I think we can say they have some good reason. You know, I was talking with this woman the other day who's part of a local 12-step group. Uh, She said recently this group has been talking a good bit about the third step, which underscores the importance of surrendering to a higher power. And she said it's proving to be an exceptionally difficult step for this group because every single one of them to a person has experienced some kind of abuse 
at the hands of the church? How do I surrender to a higher power when the, when the people who are supposedly the body of that higher power have so wounded me? Or we could simply look at the headlines that do seem to come out with some measure of regularity about a beloved church leader, a church figure, a huge ministry doing so much good, and then the abuse of power, misconduct, worse. For many, trust is low in the church and not without good reason. I think we have to be honest that amid all the good and obvious credentials, violence has been done. And at the same time, we readily see false teachers and influences pulling the hearts and minds of our society and, and the church in so many directions, right? Influences that, that keep fear at the forefront of our minds, ever underscoring to us the next threat, the growing problem, the thing that's really going to take us under. Influences that make us believe it's either us or them, this or that, its lines and its sides, Influences that make us believe the bottom line is you got to look out for yourself. You're an island, I'm an island, you do your thing, I do my thing, and as long as we don't mess with each other, we'll be fine. We have no sense of obligation, mutuality, or connection. Influences that, that make us believe we need to look uh, Instagram level put together. We, our children, our families, our grandchildren, we need to present a good front attend good functions and the right schools, and as far as anyone else is concerned, have it together. Imagine you can think of a few more strong voices, influential poles on our hearts and our minds in these our times. And in our better days, I think we look at that and say, wait. In the midst of all those voices of fear, Division, hyper-individualism, perfectionism. Where's the message of love? You know, the kind of love that's stronger than fear. The kind of love that crosses the lines. The kind of love that, that shows forth in, in surprising unity and connection. The kind of love that embraces people right in the thick of the mess. The church, we begin to think the church needs a seat at the table of influence to, to proclaim and emit, live a message of love amidst all these other voices. And nobody trusts the church. Perhaps the thought tempts us then to send forth a few more ideal Presbyterians from these walls. Well-studied, well-credentialed people from glowing, growing congregations who don't lie, cheat, or steal. Here's the truth on display from our scripture. We want a table at the seat of influence in today's society, in our workplace, in our own families, among our youth. Tell the stories of brokenness 
of failure, of missing the point. Tell the ones where the rains came and they did not stop. Tell the ones where, where tragedy struck and left an impossible void. Tell the ones where great confusion and hardship overwhelmed. Tell the ones where doubt was the only thing we were certain of. Tell the ones where we were far more complicit than we had realized. Tell the ones where our past just keeps tackling us at every step of forward momentum. Tell the ones where the only thing that carried you or covered you or, or saved you was the sheer mercy of Jesus. A love that met you somehow in the mess. In biblical language, lead with the valley of the shadow of death stories. What if the church became known as the people who just tell the truth, starting with themselves, however messy, however incomplete? Again, listen to the message version of another part of our scripture, which makes so clear how Paul leads with his failure and so places really his entire credibility upon what Jesus does. Jesus Christ, he came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public sinner number one, of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. And now he shows me off, God does, evidence of God's endless patience to those who are right on the trust, edge of trusting God forever. Queen Elizabeth II, uh, she reigned long enough that, that her life overlapped with that of C.S. Lewis. If you've been around the church, you know preachers like to quote C.S. Lewis. And uh, one of his lesser known uh, passages comes from a letter he wrote reflecting on his attendance at the Queen's coronation in 1953. You know, over here, Lewis wrote, people did not get that fairy tale feeling about the coronation. What impressed most who saw it was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of it. Hence, in the spectators, a, a feeling of, one hardly knows how to describe it, awe, pity, pathos, mystery. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. One has missed the whole point, unless one feels that we have all been crowned and the coronation is somehow, if splendid, a tragic splendor. Crowned to show forth the love and goodness of God to the ends of the earth, but that crown is not placed upon well-credentialed, buttoned-up people, but overwhelmed, broken people. Can we be honest about our stories? 
Can we simply be who we are and where we are and whatever mess we are and recognize that, that Jesus crowns us by sheer grace and lead with that inexplicable story? And what, what then would be the evidence? I mean, right, what, what is the evidence if, if, if someone or a church, they really do know their valley of the shadow of death stories and the sheer grace that met them there? Did you notice how Paul begins this entire section? I'm so grateful to Christ Jesus for making me adequate for this. A genuine sense of gratitude starts to grow foremost. Not a heart with resentment because no one's recognizing me or our credentials or what we deserve. Not, not a suffering shame because no one would understand. Not anger because we're right and they're wrong. Sure, all those feelings come and go, but predominantly more and more live from those stories in the valley of the shadow of death where the sheer mercy met us. Know what that story, lead from that story predominantly what grows upon the heart is an increasingly humble and fulsome Gratitude. Gratitude becomes the evidence. Gratitude becomes the chief sentiment. And because we recognize the source of our gratitude, our final sentiment becomes not too different from the final portion of Paul's words in our passage today. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, God only wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.